2: Welcome to The
1: Darkened Hour. Welcome
0: to another episode of The Darkened Hour. And I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald, my co-host, Richard Cox, and our special guest from Antiwar.com, political connoisseur Dave DeCamp. Dave, thanks for joining us, pal.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, Dave, listen, I think the important topic here today is something that's unduly underreported by the legacy media here in the United States, which only focuses on Iran, China, and of course, uh, the conflict in Ukraine, and the the largest humanitarian crisis in the world right now, currently, and I think those numbers are rising out of 750,000 fatalities and over a million point three displaced is the conflict in Yemen. You have been one of the primary uh, sources of reporting regarding the conflict in Yemen. I think the the introductory question for this, uh, Dave, to you is as uh, following: Is um, why has this been a, a huge conflict? What what has been what has been the precipitating factor in the conflict uh, regarding Yemen and Saudi Arabia?
2: Well, it really, uh, the Saudis first intervened in Yemen back in 2015 to the current conflict. They've fought the Houthis uh, in years prior. But mm-hmm. to get to where we're at today, it really goes back to 2014, 2015, when the Houthis in 2014, they took over most of North Yemen. So before the end of the Cold War, Yemen was two countries. It was North and south yemen and it's really actually kind of west yeah. yemen uh the area that's the north uh, and the houthis took over most of that uh driving out the forces of the you know u.s and saudi-backed government of Mansour Hadi, who is the exiled president he was actually just recently replaced by the saudis with like a presidential council so he's he's no longer the president but the houthis actually allied with salah who is the president before Hadi. he was taken out uh so they took over, and then in 2015, they drove Hadi out, and they solidified control of Sana'a, the capital. And that's when, in March 2015, when the Saudi, UAE, and other Gulf country coalition wanted to intervene to oust the, the Houthis and put the Saudi and U.S.-backed government back in charge. And the U.S. gave them their full backing and there's a lot of uh reasons why they did so and one of the big ones was uh, which was reported by the new york times was really it really was they wanted to make the saudis happy or to placate the saudis because they weren't happy with the iran nuclear deal and this was kind of okay we could give them this war uh because they are totally reliant on u.s support uh the u.s maintains their air force they were were much more involved when the war first started than they are today you know they they you know, give them targeting data and intelligence and logistics and supplies, um, and the U.S. Navy helped blockade Yemen. Um, the Saudis imposed a very brutal blockade. That's why it's such a bad humanitarian crisis, because it's not just the bombs that are killing people. It's starvation and disease. And um, so the Houthis are a tough bunch of Zaydi Shia Muslims. Uh, and, and kind of the misnomer that you get in the Western media is that they're an Iranian proxy, which that they wouldn't be there if it wasn't for Iran. So it's a war against Iran. But that's not true. The Iranians back them, you know, politically and to some extent, militarily, probably. We don't really know. There's a lot of kind of propaganda that, you know, they the narrative is that they're totally armed by Iran, but there's not really evidence of that. But the, the Houthis, um, again, they're Zaydi Shia. And that area of North Yemen was ruled by Zaidi Shia imams for a thousand years until 1962. And then um, the, the Houthis grew out of a, a, a Zaidi Shia movement that wanted to kind of reclaim the area of North Yemen as, as, as Zaidi Shia. And that's where they come from. So it's a homegrown movement. Again, the idea that it's, it's a war against Iran just isn't true. Um, but, you know, they're, again, you know, indigenous, uh, tough group that, you know, no matter how much you bomb them, it, they're not going to go away similar to, you know, the Viet Cong and, and the Pashtun Taliban and Afghanistan, you know, they're always going to find a way. And uh, so that's why the war has lasted so long. And and if you look at from 2015, when they intervened, the territory hasn't really changed hands much. Yeah, the Saudis have launched a brutal air campaign. But the forces on the ground didn't capture much territory from the Houthis. Um, so that's why it's dragged on for so long. And the Saudis just didn't want to give it up. So their prescription for that was to just, you know, hurt Yemenis and, and punish the people of North Yemen. that's why so many civilians and children have died in the war.
0: You know, at the same time, Dave, you have to, you also have to, the third factor at play of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and the Islamic State also entering the fray by bombing both uh, the Saudi government and and, and, the, and the, uh, the the Yemeni government as well. So they have to deal with that as as on top of it. Um, but you also have a, I, I believe uh, um, a UN brokered uh, nationwide truce that began on April of uh, this year. Um, has has that truce been broken? Uh, I know they've been trying to broker a truce a number of times, mm. but uh, has the have the has there been um, a peace deal that's been uh, negotiated by the two and agreed to by the two, or has the Saudis broker, uh, fractured that deal?
2: So first, um, just talking about AQAP, Al-Qaeda, it is really important to mention that a few months before the Obama administration backed the Saudis in Yemen, they were uh, allied with the Houthis. They were sharing them uh, intelligence with the Houthis to fight Al-Qaeda, to fight AQAP. Mm-hmm. And then they turn around and back the Saudis in a war that's benefited Al-Qaeda there's been reporting in, you know, from mainstream sources from AP that the UAE and, and the Saudi, the coalition, have recruited al-Qaeda fighters to fight the Houthis on the ground. Um, so, you know, the U.S. ends up back in al-Qaeda. Um, but anyway, so with the peace deal, um, so this deal was negotiated end of March and it, and it came into effect, I believe, April 1st of this year. And it has been very successful. It was probably, it was definitely the most successful truce uh, of the war. And the deal expired in October, but it's kind of still been holding. There haven't been any Saudi airstrikes in Yemen since March. So that's a huge deal. And it's a big relief to the people of Yemen. They've also eased the blockade somewhat, they've let more ships go into Hodeidah, which is the Red Sea port, because that was really something that was putting a strain on the civilians because that's where the fuel comes in. And with no fuel, you can't deliver aid and food and stuff. So again, it's still under blockade, but they're letting more ships in. And then the Sanaa airport, they're allowing like limited flights out of there. That was closed for years. So this stuff is all good, but um, the ceasefire did expire in October and there's been an increase in fighting on the ground. And so it could really kind of spark up at, at any time and escalate. And actually, right before they reached this truce in April, Saudi airstrikes really uh, spiked. And it was one of the deadliest few months for civilians since much earlier in the war. So there's always a risk of it getting really bad again really quickly. Um, and I mean, that really showed kind of the hypocrisy of the U.S. as, they, as Russia invaded Ukraine and they were all this rhetoric that they have about that war, but while they're also backing the Saudis, you know, destroy their neighbor in Yemen. Um, So yeah, again, it could, it could really just pop off again at at any time now.
0: You know, during Biden's presidential campaign, I I remember him making several uh, campaign promises that were in line with Obama's uh, doctrine of withdrawing from the middle East and focusing instead on uh, China. However, the promises that he made were to uh, return to the nuclear deal with Iran, to end the war in Yemen, and to treat Saudi Arabia as the pariah uh, that it deserves to be considered to be. And what happens during his first year, first, not even first couple of weeks in office, uh, Biden, he, he absolutely absconded away from these promises, uh, downgraded the, the position in, in Iraq, pulled out advanced military installations in the Gulf region, and instead, uh, goes and visits uh, uh, the uh, Crown Prince Salman and is actually, uh, well, what can I say? His, his goals were not met in oil production. Uh, Saudi Arabia finally found out what they're worth and realized mm. that they're the, they're, they're the real drivers at play here. So Biden came away empty-handed. Khashoggi's murder is still uh, blamed on Saudi Arabia, but nothing is, is solved. And the Yemen crisis continues. So is this a, is this a basically uh, the U.S. position in that we'll allow what's going on in the background just to appease the Saudis in order to become the primary regulators of oil, Saudi oil?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, so what, when Biden first came into office, I believe it was February, you know, right after he was sworn mm-hmm. in, he came out and said that he was ending offensive support for the war in yemen uh but that turned out to just be a lie because a few months later the pentagon admitted that oh yeah we're still servicing their planes which is like at this point the 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 most crucial support that they give the coalition and at the time they were still bombing yemen so uh that was just nonsense and then when it comes to the saudis i mean the Democrats and Biden were really unhappy that they made those oil cuts with OPEC plus in October right before the midterms. So you're right by giving them what they want. He's still kind of not getting getting what he wants out of the Saudis. Uh, but they, they're they still choosing not to really punish them uh, or make them a pariah, like he said, or just kind of, you know, it's not that, that you really have to punish the Saudis. You could just stop giving them so much support. But he's not doing that, and I think the Saudis are smart. They know how to play the U.S. Uh, just recently, Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, went over to Saudi Arabia, and they, you know, declared this new strategic partnership, and, and they signed like a, a declaration. But it, it's very vague, just saying that they're going to increase trade and in, and in, in all these ways. Um, but I think part of it was the Saudis signaling to the U.S. like, hey, you can't get rid of us right now. We'll go to China which is now Biden and and the Pentagon, they say that that's their top priority. They say China's the big threat, so they don't want to lose the Saudis to China. And then if you want to get into what just happened in the Senate with the the war powers resolution, you know, that's another example of um, how Biden is still just trying to placate the Saudis.
0: You know, you have a lot of also of other uh, elements at play here that have their own agenda, Um, And for example, like um, uh, I remember Secretary of State and former DCI, Mike Pompeo, who back in, um, I want to say it was like in the spring or summer of 2019, um, pushed through like an $8 billion arms deal to the Gulf, uh, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, uh, Jordan, and of course Saudi Arabia, um, citing that there was a large activity of the Iranian influence in the region, and at the same time, while that's happening, you also have, you know, Israeli air defense who are bombing Iranian outposts in Syria who are, you know, trying to, along with the, the Turks to, I'm sorry, the Russians to basically, you know, eliminate what's ever left of the Islamic State. And at the same time, you have the United States and Israel basically um, trying to uh, circumvent that uh, issue of of eliminating what's left of the Islamic State, and of course, I you know you've reported on this many a time about timber sycamore, which was the CIA operation of funding those Islamic State under the uh, the, uh, the the guise of oh we're just trying to um, alleviate the, the the destruction of Basad Arasad's uh, ruling democracy in the in the country, but you can't have it both ways, can you have it, Dave? So. Um, Is is there is there a link between trying to destroy Iran's uh, allies while destroying uh, uh, Iran's uh, influence in a region such as Syria and uh, cutting off the link to um, to Lebanon?
2: Yeah, well, that's a major part of it. Um, And if you see what Israel and the, the U.S. want to happen right now is that, you know, since Israel signed those normalization deals with the UAE and Bahrain, They've been increasing military cooperation with them and the Saudis, too, kind of behind the scenes. They they haven't normalized with the Saudis. But what they want, really, what the U.S. and Israel want is an anti-Iran alliance, like an anti-Iran NATO in the Middle East, pretty much made up of Israel Mm -hmm. and the Gulf states. So that's another part of why they're kind of still giving the Saudis and the UAE what they want, because they really do want to form – because the U.S. is still sort of pulling – They've definitely uh, they're still involved in the Middle East, of course, still in Syria and Iraq and Yemen and Somalia, uh, but they have drawn down a lot, and they're they're trying to, you know, shift the resources away from the region toward the Asia Pacific. But they want to leave behind, you know, this um, this anti-Iran alliance. That that's their goal here, I think. And uh, it is funny because it's focused on air defense, but Israel's the one that's always bombing its neighbors. They're <laughs> the one that's always bombing Syria and uh, occasionally Lebanon. Um, and they portray this again, these Houthi attacks. One of the reasons why the Saudis have kind of are looking for a way out in the war in Yemen is because the Houthis got really good at bombing their oil facilities uh, inside Saudi Arabia and the UA- UAE as well. Um, but So they portray all those Houthi attacks as Iranian attacks, even though it's clear that they're doing it in response to the war in Yemen. Like it's not Iran directing these attacks. They're doing it because they're at war with the Saudis because they wage the war on them. Um, So you just see how the propaganda is used to kind of justify their next plans for this alliance that they want.
1: Can I come up with a question there Mm -hmm. regarding motivation? So we hear this narrative that, the U.S.'s interest is to placate the Saudis, to maintain the alliance, to keep Saudi Arabia on board with the oil and everything. But do you think there are more good old-fashioned imperialistic reasons for the U.S. having a a direct interest in Yemen and essentially using the Saudis to fight a proxy war? What what I'm thinking is that Yemen is resource-rich in terms of oil, apparently other minerals, and geostrategically at the the far end of the Red Sea from the um, Suez Canal, the British have wanted control of yemen since the 1830s and fought a bloody war apparently about 200,000 people died uh, during the british exit of yemen in the 1960s so do, do you think that um, it is just a case of the the us supporting what is essentially a saudi interest in these kind of resources I, and i'm assuming that you would maybe agree with that but maybe you could speak to it also what, what exactly the saudi interest is what they hope to get out of yemen and i've heard the resource uh, argument and i've also heard uh, because of its position to relevant to, to East Africa, there's kind of water pipelines mm. and all sorts that could go in for there. Um, so, what what I suppose, yeah, what, what you think motivation is on those two levels? And then um, I'll just pop my sort of an additional question in now. On the other side of the motivation coin, is what would motivate Saudi Arabia to get out? Because I've heard different accounts of how damaging these attacks on infrastructure from the Houthis in Saudi have been. And do you think that that really could be the driving force for Saudi to? back down if they, if the houthis can give them a bloody nose it could be sufficient to end the
2: war yeah so as far as their interests in the saudi control um i believe that they there are resources in yemen that they want and that the location you know on the red sea there is very strategic to both the u.s and saudi arabia and like i said about that alliance um that they want between israel and and the Saudis and the other Arab states is that because the U.S., it is you know imperialistic in that way that they want to draw it down from the region, but they still want control over the region. So they want their allies to you know, come together to, to secure these strategic areas. Um, I think that's definitely a major part of it. As far as the Saudi interest, I would say, I mean, I haven't really thought, analyzed it too much, I guess, but I, I would say probably just the control over the area, the border area with Yemen has always been a little volatile because the houthis are up there um control over yemen and the resources and the the that area uh, on the red sea and then um sorry what was the second question oh regarding
1: i mean you, you sort of answered it previously i think you were going there but mm. regarding the houthi attacks on saudi
2: infrastructure do you oh, think yeah. they
1: could be a sufficient motivating factor to get the saudis to the table and to really make them think twice if they're going to get a truly bloody nose
2: I definitely think so. Yeah. Um, because th- they were launching them for a few years. And then back in September, 2019, I forget the name of the facilities that they hit, but it significantly impacted, you know, they were pretty major attacks and really impacted their oil production um, and they had to repair it. So I think uh, that definitely put a scare into uh, a lot of the Saudis. And and it was from then that we started to see more talks and, and efforts towards peace negotiations and a ceasefire um so i think what the houthis were able to do definitely that definitely played a major role in in the saudis looking to de-escalate and i think still even though with the peace with the ceasefire expired and there's always the risk of escalation i think the saudis are looking for a way out and do want want to end this war but they also don't want to cut a deal. Uh, That's too good for the Houthis. You know, they don't want to like recognize a Houthi state, uh, you know, really finally admit that they are the, you know, they've controlled the area since 2015 um, and they they don't really want to cede that to them. So, you know, there's all these things at play here, but I think if the U.S. really backed off and and they could make the Saudis make a deal and and end this war pretty easily, I think, if they wanted to.
1: That's an extension of the question, really, because it's asking what would motivate the saudis to come to the table but then the deeper question and probably more important question is what motivates the u.s to come to the table
2: Mm -hmm. yeah it's a good question um i think right now what would motivate them i think they're still trying to just keep the saudis happy with these oil cuts and and stuff so if there is still some element you know of the saudis desire to keep this war going i think the u.s just doesn't want to be the one right now to try to push them to the table while they're dealing with these, this other kind of crisis of relationship with them. I think right now they just don't want to lean on the Saudis to end the war because of all that other stuff.
0: You know, it's funny is that where, uh, a couple months ago, uh, Dave, this was, this was actually, I don't know if it was coincidental or not. I'd like to get your thoughts. Um, when Biden uh, came away from that uh, meeting with Prince Salman um, and was pretty uh there was a lot of negative feedback regarding legacy media about you know how Biden should have handled it and you know the fist bump picture mm-hmm. um and what happened was a couple of days later, the largest and most uh, important uh, documents relating to an FBI um nine eleven investigation called Operation Encore came out, and I said, "Wow, I said, you know that's just great timing. you know here's Biden came away red faced from a meeting, and then all of a sudden these files come out. Regarding uh, Operation Encore and the investigation of Saudi complicity and financing to certain 9/11 hijackers in the 9/11 attacks, and I thought, you know, maybe this was uh, U.S.'s way of saying, you know, if you don't uh, co, you know, com- uh, acquiesce to our demands, you know, we'll just have, you know, these, these files just suddenly leak out, showing your complicity. <laughs> is that does that make any sense? Or
2: yeah, I mean, the timing definitely is very suspicious. There, I think uh, they could have been trying to send them a message with that. Um, and media wise, I mean, it's interesting to see because like the Washington post probably has a lot to do with the fact that Khashoggi wrote for them, but all the liberal media has been like pretty critical. It's like one of the few areas where they're critical of Biden, just the fact that he hasn't actually made MBS a pariah and, or done anything about Khashoggi. Um, you know, it's kind of the, the one issue that they seem to be uh, unhappy about with Biden. And that's why I think recently this this thing that was in Congress, the Yemen War Powers resolution that would have ended US, it would have directed the president to end U.S support for the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. I thought it was a like the perfect time to get that pushed through because the Democrats, because of the oil cuts and as well as the media side of, of of the Democrats and the liberals were just not happy with the Saudis. but still it just wasn't enough to make anything happen.
0: There's been a lot of pressure on the Saudis. I mean, coming from the United States first was to get rid of the, you know, the religious, uh, the religious lima, the, the religious police and have women uh, rights come back in the country. There's been certain restrictions been lifted, but I mean, we are talking about the only country in the world governed by two states, which is the, you know, the federal state, the uh, monarchy of the kingdom. And then you have the religious Lima Wahhabism, as it's told, uh at the same time. But there's been a lot of disconnect between the religious uh, fanatics and the sector of Saudi Arabia, and some sympathizers within the uh, the kingdom itself. And uh, you know, I was talking about this with uh, my colleague Richard Cox before you came on uh, about, a, about a couple of years ago. We saw these uh, rumors that were coming out that there was going to be a coup against Salman, and that there was bombings heard inside the the kingdom itself, and we we're wondering whether it was for, you know the factions are trying to get rid of Salman. And his um, very repressive uh, governorship and you know uh, whether or not to bring back the old line of thinking. And um, Salman, under pressure from the United States and probably from you know the coalition partners like Germany and France and Australia and others, uh, to say, "Hey, wait a minute, you know, you know, you're a country that's you know bringing about these fanatics like Al Qaeda and Islamic State, and we need to cut back, and we need to show that you're willing to." um uh, acquiesce to our demands and uh basically you know act as a good partner in good faith they have in certain regards but they have it in others and you know with the khashoggi murder you know it just goes to show you that this country basically runs on horror and authority uh regarding um what they're about is is that ever going to i mean we have always hear it from the united states you know saudi arabia is trying to reform mm-hmm. can they really reform
2: yeah, I mean, it's tough to say. I know uh, one thing that's been ignored a lot by the media is the fact that this year, I believe, uh, you know, they went through with like a record number of executions. Uh, mm, you know, they're, mm. they're still doing things like that, and they execute minors, and or they execute people that they prosecuted as minors. Um, and the reforms that MBS, you know, I think they were very minor. The things that that he's mm. done, although when he did it, I remember it was kind of before the media was so against him in in the U S you know, he did very minor things and they kind of touted him as this like hero of women's rights because he was going to let some women drive or something like that. They used to get very like favorable coverage. Um, And it helps with the Saudis because they, you know, they speak great English and, you know, they can sound kind of uh, you know, they seem like they're pretty in tune with the West and, and the U S and the culture. So I think, they had a pretty good way of uh, spinning themselves as more, uh, less, you know, old-fashioned and Wahhabist than, uh, than they really are. Uh, I think their PR used to be a lot better. But since the Khashoggi, the Khashoggi thing was really the big turning point for mm. how they're viewed uh, in the West and in the U.S. You know, nobody cared about the Yemeni children that they were bombing and starving. It was killing the guy who wrote for the Washington Post that, that turned everybody on on against them
0: there's not, you know, I, I've said this before, that the reason why everybody knows about the the uh, Israeli lobby is because we share a lot in commonality with the state of Israel. I mean, we have the largest uh, nationalist, Israeli nationalists existing in the world, which is the evangelical Christians in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, they are basically similar in terms of governing democracy, um, how they deal with dissidents and, you know, dealing with the Palestinians, how our police deals with Regular civilians in this country, and that's another discussion. But we share almost nothing in common with Saudi Arabia, nothing. And this is, you know, and a lot of people are surprised when they find out there's, a, there's an actual Saudi lobby inside the United States. But they exist in the shadows,
2: mm-hmm. and that's
0: only because um, if the United States basically finds out what Saudi Arabia really is about and what they are really governed by, we'll, they'll be horrified and say, "You know, why in, why on earth are we dealing with one of the most repressive?" most ghoulish governments on the face of the earth. And then we might question about whether or not we need to deal with them in the first place. And um, maybe this is the reason why, Dave, and I'd like to get your thoughts about why the legacy media has not reported on this, you know, the largest humanitarian crisis in the world, which is Yemen.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why. And it's funny, too, when it comes to Saudi Arabia, because even now that there is more criticism of them, you know, everything The U.S. media is like hyper focused on, you know, human rights abuses in like China and Iran and Mm. all these other countries. But still, even now, like you don't ever see like big reports in The New York Times about women's rights in Saudi Arabia. It's still not really getting critical coverage. And then as to why the war in Yemen just got such little coverage. I mean, it's really hard to say because it 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 is like a shocking amount, like shockingly small amount of coverage that the war has gotten i remember this is one of the reasons that that i started writing and everything was because during the trump administration it was all russia gate russia sure. stormy daniels and there was this report from fair fairness and accuracy and reporting that analyzed i believe it was 2017 to 2018 a whole year of like nbc coverage and they covered the war in yemen like zero times but yeah. you know and then they put out the numbers of you know how much they've covered stormy daniels and this was when you know the bombing campaign was at its most brutal, and more people woke up to it in 2018 when they bombed a school bus full of Yemeni children. Um, that killed about, I believe it was about 60 kids were killed in this one airstrike using a U.S. made weapon. You know, and so that was so brutal that it got more attention. But then even after that, it fizzled out again. Um, so there are interests. I would say the Saudi lobby. Is pretty powerful. Um, And the arms industry, you know, that's why the Trump administration, you know, continued the policy. And that's what was funny about Trump is that he would say, oh, we got to keep being friends with Saudi Arabia because, you know, Raytheon and Boeing and Lockheed Martin, they're making all these billions on selling them weapons. So that's definitely a big part of it, too. Uh, And it's bipartisan. You know, it was a war started by Obama and continued by Trump and now, again, continued by Biden And it just doesn't fit anybody's narrative. You know, nobody wants to hear about Obama helping kill kids in Yemen and even uh, Trump. I mean, for all the really horrible things he did, the media focused on on things that were, weren't really important and were also kind of uh, embellished, especially the Russiagate stuff, that a lot of it was just totally made up. Um, I think because, you know, Obama's implicated in, in Yemen, too. So maybe that's a big reason why.
1: It is incredible that it. there's this force in society that can pick up the attention of millions and millions of people and place it somewhere, like it, and place it not somewhere else. Like it can place it on Ukraine and say, "This is diff- this is horrendous. This is a humanitarian disaster and all the rest." And everyone has those emotions, that genuine feeling evoked within them. But it can also take it away from somewhere like Yemen. And it's such a magic trick that. That's the only, I can only describe it in terms of magic because it's not something I could rationally explain how any group or could have such a, a power to do that, to direct attention that way.
2: Yeah, especially with Yemen. I mean, like if you see the pictures of kids, it's like so horrific. Um, and it really is as the UN, like it's not just us saying this, it's this is what the UN has determined that Yemen is the world's worst humanitarian crisis and the U S is fueling it, but it gets such, Little attention. It's pretty frustrating and kind of like disheartening too, um, thinking about it because it's like, what you, you think if you could expose something so horrible that that would get enough people to pay attention to it. But even though there's all this information out about it, still it's just, you know, furthest thing from so many people's minds.
1: It's almost, it reminds me of the show Westworld where the robots can be programmed to not see things that are right <laughs> in front of their face if it doesn't fit that the narrative, the script that they're running on, and that's what it feels like the media can do.
2: Yeah. But humans yeah. are kind of
1: robot-like that way.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, it really is something.
0: You know, you have, a, you have a wide spread of war crime accusations happening at the same time, and this is not getting the attention from the international theater, no less. One of the rare reporters reporting for the ground is Faria al-Muslimin, who's actually documenting the war crimes that have been committed during the conflict. And then you have the one example of the internationally displaced person camp, uh, which was hit by a Saudi airstrike, while Houthis have sometimes prevented aid workers from even giving aid, um, even to their own forces. Uh, And the United Nations and uh, several human rights groups discussed the possibility that war crimes have been committed by the the Saudi Arabian uh, and Gulf camp and it's been largely ignored by the international press. And I think there was one even British reporter, Alex uh, Wahl, who wrote that the responsibility uh, for Yemen goes beyond even Riyadh and Abu Dhabi to London and Washington itself. So, I mean, you have United States you have Britain who sells, what is it, $4.5 billion of arms sales to Saudi Arabia, Five hundred million of that goes to the United Arab Emirates since the war even began. The United States spending billions of dollars of of armaments to Saudi Arabia itself. That's eight point eight billion, I think, recently uh, earlier uh, this year. Just the money goes on and on and on. But yet, all this money that could be supportive for armaments for war could also be spent at the same time, Dave, to you know the human rights groups on the ground trying to uh appease human rights groups to try and bring both parties to the table, bring an end to the war. Why hasn't this happened yet?
2: Um I mean, like you said, I think it is a matter of uh the just the money that there is to be made on the war and how the US the control they still want to control the region. So they're just gonna kind of give the Saudis and the UAE what they want. Um I mean I sometimes I do think like I always just thinking about the current situation with Ukraine and Russia and how the U S has sent about $20 billion worth of weapons over there. And spending is going to be well over 100 billion uh, pretty soon. Once Congress authorizes the new package and you wonder like, how could they be this reckless, like risking a war on Russia's border with, with risking nuclear war after the cold war, like everybody forgot all those lessons. And I try to like, think about what secret conspiracy there might be or what's really behind it but sometimes you know i think it might just be as simple as the money the the weapons industry the military industrial complex i mean right now raytheon lockheed martin they can pretty much make as many weapons as they can make they can sell to ukraine they're making money in all sorts of ways by the u.s sending weapons to ukraine refilling its own stockpiles buying weapons for ukraine the europeans sending buying new weapons now they want to modernize their militaries it's just like a complete boondoggle for the arms industry and that it doesn't matter how dangerous it is and then you think about china uh you know there's a lot of american corporations that have a lot of interest in making money in china yet relations with china are are really going down the toilet and, and the U.S. is putting all these economic sanctions on China, I think, because, you know, the military, the mic is is more powerful than the other corporations in our country because they're just so interwoven with the government. I mean, you have the guy running the Pentagon he's, is, is a former Raytheon board member. So I think a lot of that is true when it, when it comes to Yemen, that it is just a matter of money and, and power, uh, power to control the region. And they could also make a ton of money off it, so why not keep it? Keep doing it.
0: Yeah, just to follow up on that, uh, Lynn Malouf of the Amnesty International was quoted as saying, "The international community has a responsibility to close the gates to all arms sales that are fueling the needless suffering of civilians in Yemen in the armed conflict." And you know, I happen to think that there's there's a lot of factors at play. You have the military industrial complex, you have foreign lobbyists. And you have other individual interests that are outside the United States, like Great Britain, uh, United Arab Emirates, uh, Jordan, all at the same time fueling this, this, um, this conflict. And at the same time, what's not being reported are the war crimes, are the actors in the field and foreign theater, domestic theater, all having these nefarious uh, agendas at play here. Something has got to give. And I think with with honest reporting, and that, that's saying something because we don't have that. Um, if we could just like make inroads to that and get enough people, because there are people who are against this war. I mean, you have World Human Rights Watch, you have Amnesty International, you have uh, a lot of foreign correspondents on the ground in Yemen trying to report the best they can over the tsunami of propaganda and disinformation regarding the conflict. It's all about getting that break. And I, I happen to wonder if that case was Khashoggi himself. And one of the reasons why they killed was because of that as well as um him reporting on 9 nine eleven in Saudi Arabia links to the uh uh to the incident itself. But I mean or am I just um you know making a pipe dream here, Dave? Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Yeah, I mean again it's it's tough to say because you know all the information on Yemen and how horrible it is is out there. Mm-hmm. Um but what will like move people to act and and uh it's tough to say but yet again I mean there is actually a pretty strong group of lobbyists in in DC and anti-war groups that get legislation in Congress to end the war it just always kind of fails to uh To make it, you know, like Trump, there was a resolution passed in 2019 to end U.S. involvement in the war that Trump vetoed and they didn't have enough support to override the veto. And then just recently this year, there was a war powers resolution introduced in both the House and the Senate, and they gained a ton of bipartisan support in the House, not so much in the Senate. But this was a pretty big effort by activists and libertarians actually got very involved, thanks to Scott Horton. I mean, the Libertarian Party and all, us, Antiwar.com, and and all these other groups were got people to call their senators and and like flooded the 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 lines. Which, you know, I'm pretty cynical. I, it's something I would never really think to do is to call my senator about something. <clears throat> but when you have this kind of movement growing, again, it's really thanks to these anti-war lobbyists that work and operate in D.C. They're mostly leftist groups that. Um, for a lot of congressional staffers or former congressional staffers, they know how to get things moving. Um, and then you had this war powers resolution that Bernie Sanders was ready to introduce. And sure. this was just last week. They were going to hold a vote and they, he said, yeah, I think we got the votes. And then the day, I believe it was last Monday or Tuesday that he would, he said, you know, vote was scheduled for 7 PM that night. All these reports came out that the white house was working against the resolution, telling senators to vote against it. And then you saw Democrats uh, changing their position and Bernie Sanders folded and caved into the pressure. He didn't even introduce it for a vote because there was a chance, according to people behind the scenes, were saying that they think they could have gotten five to eight Republican senators to vote in favor of this. So even with the White House pressure, it still could have passed. Now, even if it made it through the Senate and House, Biden would have vetoed it. That's what they were threatening. But it still could have sent a message to change things. Because back in 2019, when that resolution passed through the House and the Senate, you know, the UAE like withdrew from a lot of its forces from Yemen because they saw that they were losing support in Washington. Now, they support a lot of militias on the ground in southern Yemen there. um, But they did kind of scale back their role in the war. So the pressure does do something, even though it's easy to get cynical and think that there's nothing we could do. Um, But I don't know. I mean, what what happened with with this Senate thing that that was pretty deflating because it seemed like it had enough support to get through. And then when you have to rely on politicians, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not the that's not what I'm suggesting either, is that we should rely on politicians. I think getting the information and the message out there to people is the thing that we should be focused on, you know, but it's tough.
0: That was a depressing issue because I actually uh, was watching part of the Sanders speech. And I remember cutting out the the video and saying, I got to post this on my channel mm-hmm. and, you know, showing that Sanders basically, uh, you know, deflated the issue. It caused a huge stir within the libertarian circles because as soon as he did that, I mean, on Twitter and viral media, it was flaming Sanders yeah. time. It was all over the place. Yeah.
2: And it actually did, I think, get the war in Yemen back on a lot of people's minds again.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm
2: but it was funny that speech because i was watching it so he comes out and he says oh i'm not gonna introduce the bill uh because the white, the administration is against it but then he went and delivered the same speech saying what this resolution would do and it was like a pretty good speech and at the end of it he's like but i'm still not going to introduce it it was just funny because he gave the same speech saying like mm-hmm. how good it would be to pass this resolution like why even give the speech why not just give up <laughs>
0: Maybe, maybe trying to save face I, at the same time. I, I, I didn't know, but I thought that would be the final nail in the coffin of having any hope for, you know, opposing, you know, the war machine of, of yeah. Congress itself. And it's a deflating issue. And but we still have this, you know, libertarian anti-war consensus, as you, you know, as you pointed out before. And it's what got me on board of like, you know, seeing, and that's why I met with, you know, you and Reed Coverdale in yeah. the Libertarian because I wanted to see for myself just how, you know, how much of a force this consciousness has. Because if it wasn't for this, I'm basically a full, full-blown pessimist. I don't care about the future, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, no, but when I got to meet the young and old at this Libertarian Conference, it did give me a little bit of hope that I wasn't there before. Yeah. So you know, because I, I was really like surprised at it. I said, you know what? There are people that really do care, and but I needed to see that for myself, and I was very glad I went. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is an anti-war voice that are going on, and it did. Uh, I'm glad you brought this up because it did bring back the Yemen conflict to the table. That that speech by by um, by um, Sanders there. But where does it go, right? And you answered it before. You, you just don't know whether this is going to go for war. I would like to think that with will we have one more full year of Biden next year, and then we have the, the running for the new president. And I happen to think that out with the old, in with the new, and I happen to think that this will be um, a Republican president. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are fed up with with the Democratic establishment, I think a year and a half into it. You know, COVID mandates, uh, the conflict in Ukraine, uh, revisitation to the Cold War theater, uh, the crisis in Yemen, uh, just a slew of just uh, disastrous policies, and not, notwithstanding the most unpopular vice president in our lifetime, uh, with Kamala <laughs> Harris. And I think there's going to be a change. Now, with, whether this change comes with DeSantis or Trump, and I think DeSantis has the backing of the, the conservatives anyway. Um, I think DeSantis wins but what does this mean for Yemen
2: I think it's bad news for Yemen because um, what the Republicans like what Biden the whole issue with the Saudis the OPEC oil cuts uh, a lot of Republicans have been very critical of that and like a president like DeSantis I think he might make a point if he comes in to kind of uh, like a reproachment with the Saudis to to like, oh, let's let's get our relations with Saudi Arabia back on track and give them whatever they want, which could mean even stronger support in the war in Yemen. I wouldn't be surprised if if that's how they approach it. Um, I mean, it's still who knows what the next few years will bring, because that's definitely going to impact it. But I mean, if I like I said, Trump and, uh, you know, his his people were uh, all in on, on supporting Saudi Arabia and, and in the war in Yemen. And I think DeSantis, uh, when it comes to the Middle East, you know, his policies are going to be really bad. Um, and I I do agree, you know, I can't imagine <laughs> Biden winning in 2024. Um, but it all depends on who, who the Republicans run. And, you know, right now it does, DeSantis is the front runner, but you still never know. I mean, things change so quick. You know, you look back at the 2020 election. You know, did you think Joe Biden would be the Demo- Would be running for the Democrats? Um, you know, it was hard to imagine that. Uh, so things could change really quick. But I think that a Republican president isn't going to change much uh, when it comes to the rate, to the situation in the Middle East. Now it might might even be worse. Um, with Ukraine, there there is some dissent on the Republican side against this support, but it's a pretty small minority right now. You know hopefully that grows uh, but when it comes to just overall republicans are all about you know arming ukraine um so i don't see a big change there either
0: no and you know that's why we bring up the issue of who they're going to run the democratic side hillary clinton basically said that she would support biden to run again i'm like you know he can't physically do this again i mean When it comes to war, Dave, is that, you know, an older president is basically hesitant to you know, going full out war conflict, whereas a younger president would entertain such an issue. And I think DeSantis, who is basically an uh, uh, APAC supporter anyway, hard uh, APAC supporter, uh, I asked this question to Scott Horton years ago, and I'll ask you the same question. What would this mean for Iran at the same time?
2: Well, I mean, it's tough to imagine things being worse right now with Iran and the US uh, because Biden, you know, he never returned to the nuclear deal. He when he first came into office, he he could have lifted sanctions and they could have returned to it right then. But he didn't. They had these long, drawn out negotiations that didn't go anywhere. And they've been increasing sanctions. Now, with the protests in Iran, you know, they're they're uh, saying outright, you know, that they support the protesters. I believe that they're probably trying to give them some sort of material support. Um, and they keep increasing sanctions, and Israel is becoming more and more threatening. You know, They just simulated bombing Iran. The U.S. and Israel just did joint drills. And you have Biden administration officials saying that they'll use a military option against Iran as a last resort to keep them from making a bomb, even though the Pentagon in there, they just recently released their nuclear posture review that said, uh, yeah, that acknowledged that Iran has not decided to make a nuclear weapon. Uh, but that's still kind of the basis for all these tensions. Um, so, I mean, the only way it could get worse is if Israel or the U.S. outright, you know, attack, start a war with Iran. Um, mm. And I don't think, I think with China kind of being the the priority, I don't think the U.S., whether a Republican comes in or not, has an interest in starting a full-blown war with Iran but I think they would kind of just maintain what is now the status quo is like this cold war in the middle East between Israel and Iran that involves covert attacks inside Iran and all these really bad sanctions and bombing Syria all the time. And, and that, I think we're just going to keep that up for a while, but that could always spark, it could always spark a war. You know, sure. you could lose control of that situation pretty quickly.
0: I mean, weren't they trying to precipitate what would Iran just last year? I think you had the issue in the, um, um, the, uh, the issue was uh, blaming Iran bombing a Saudi Gulf uh, Gulf uh, ship. Oh, the um, tanker, yeah. Yeah, the tanker itself. And they closed the port to the sea. Um, they, I mean, trying to goad Iran, basically, mm-hmm. and Iran won't bite. Um, but let me play a hypothetical for you, Dave. What do you see in the next five years regarding Yemen?
2: Regarding Yemen, uh, I mean, it's tough to say, you know, the worst case scenario would be that no real peace talks happen and the war starts up again. And the, the, you know, Republican president comes in and kind of gives his full backing to the Saudis. And it just goes back to what it was, you know, blockaded country, uh, this bombing campaign and a lot of fighting on the ground. Um, But I do think there's a chance, you know, I don't think we're going to see like a good peace uh, deal come out of this. But I think, maybe what the situation is now, they might negotiate another short, uh, ceasefire. Um, and just kind of, it might just be like a frozen conflict for a few years. Um, but five years down the line, uh, I mean, I I think the chances are slim of the Saudis without pressure from the U S and it doesn't seem like we're going to see that pressure, Mm. uh, signing like a real durable peace deal with the Houthis, uh, that would surprise me if that happened, unfortunately.
0: Richard, any follow-up questions?
2: No, I'm good. I'm very happy with the questions I've asked.
1: What are your thoughts, yeah. Adam? Is, is that a? No, that's fine. Want... Uh,
0: yeah, that's yeah, fine. Dave, oh, uh, thank you very much. Well, I would actually, on. there's
1: one question. I would like uh, Dave to comment on where people can find his writing, uh, where it's at yeah. But warcom yeah. And also just talk a little about the podcast that's been going on for a few months. It's like a daily news round of yeah. antiwar yeah. writing which is like half an hour and it's a great way I'm finding to just keep on top of, of the current issues. So could you, could you say a few words about that please, Dave?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the uh, I write at all my writing is at antiwar.com. I mostly write in the news section. So if you go on the page and you see the top news section, most of those articles up there are, are by me. Um, really. It's just like I write short news summaries kind of from our perspective, anti-war non-interventionist perspective, a lot of what I do is kind of put things in the proper context, especially when we're talking about Iran, because you'll see, oh, that they blame Iran for, uh, you know, a tanker attack, you know, in the Gulf. But then there's actually all this context about how Israel has been attacking Iranian ships in the Gulf for years. That's never included in the mainstream media. And that context is crucial to understand a story. Um, or a lot of the time I'm just kind of removing kind of the fluff, the, the nonsense that they put in, mm. um, so you go check that out. And then I started like a daily five day a week podcast. Uh, it's also on YouTube uh, called Anti-War News, where I just because I write all these articles. And then at the end of the day, I just summarize them. Uh, it's easier for me to do. It's all fresh in my mind. So that's a good way to keep up because I know a lot of people don't read articles these days. They want to listen to podcasts. So you could check that out. And uh, yeah, that's what I'm focused on now.
0: All that's going to be in the description, by the way, at the bottom, so everybody can link on to it as well. Uh, Dave, thank you very much for coming on and explaining the conflict to us in uh, generalities that we can understand it. Thank you very much for coming on. And Richard, thank you very much for having us uh, uh, coming on as well.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys.